You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo Piliucci, good to see you again. It's a pleasure as usual, Dan. So um, I want to welcome uh, everyone at Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV, and especially the members of the Sofia audience. Uh, I am here with my original partner in crime and still my favorite interlocutor, Massimo Piliucci, who is the KD Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of the City University of New York. Are you, yeah, still, are, mouthful, you still, are you still teaching at the Graduate Center also? I also teach at the Graduate Center, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I'm, of course, uh, Daniel Kaufman of Missouri, uh, Professor of Philosophy at Missouri State University. Um, Massimo, today we're going we're gonna to talk about um, something. We're going to get into some, some hardcore philosophy, some technical philosophy, which I think some of the audience will be happy about, given that, um, we, that you and I and then I and others have been doing a lot of ethical, social, political subjects. And um, there are some real philosophy buffs in the audience that I think will be happy for a technical discussion. Um, and we'll try not to bore too much the other ones. That's right. That's right. Well, our our typical charm and good humor will make sure that we'll make sure that. Um, so, we're going to talk today about ontology, and um, th- what that exactly is will come up in the discussion. Um, but what I want I want to preface it a little bit by that. Actually, you and I have talked around this issue quite a bit. Because you and I have done a number of discussions where the question of reductionism has been at the front and center, but we've typically been talking about reductionism over on the explanatory side. That is, whether the explanations we give of various phenomena or events, etc., um, ultimately have to, in some sense, reduce to explanations that you would that would you would find in some science or other. Right. And we've largely skirted around the question of ontological reductionism. And I think mostly we've just sort of hand-waved in the direction of a kind of a general materialism. But right. recently, I've been getting more and more interested in the question of ontological reductionism. And I think I've been growing less and less comfortable within what is generally called the materialist framework. And so I wanted to talk to you about this uh, in some detail and go straight at the ontological questions rather than skirt around them as we have been in the past. Yeah, that, that sounds good. I have to premise that in this case, uh, you might find that I'm much more sympathetic than you might think about your positions. Uh, you know, I read some of your articles in the, uh, the Electric Agora. Uh, I don't think we're quite on the same, on the same page, uh, but, I'm, but it's going to be interesting because, first of all, my own ideas on this are kind of evolving. Uh, and so it was actually kind of interesting and challenging to read what you wrote. Uh, because it made me think about certain things in a way that I normally don't think about. So I think this is going to be interesting. Let's see how it goes. And I should say also that my views are still in formation too. I am hardly of a fixed position on this. Um, Essentially, I'm unhappy with materialism as it's generally described, but I also don't want to be any kind of mysterian or Platonist or anything like that. And and what I'm wondering is whether there's a way to to have my cake and eat it too. And so – but let's start, because this is not a uh, professional philosopher's audience, I, I did want to start with just picking your brains a Be little bit. Be careful when you talk about professional philosophers, because <laughs> I got in trouble on Twitter uh, recently because I dared to suggest that there is such a thing as a professional philosophy. Really? Oh, yeah. All what? sorts of people responded, I can think, therefore I can philosophize. Well, doesn't that just mean somebody whose job is at a university in a some sort of 
All right, all right. You know, so, it's social media. I thought I was making a very uncontroversial statement, <laughs> but apparently not. Anyway, so yes. That's well, that was your mistake for ever being on social media to begin with. That's all that I could say. I um, so, but I do want to ask you just, and I know, you know, you teach a variety of courses across the curriculum. So this must at some point come up. Could you just say, give us the version that you'd give to an undergraduate, right? What is ontology? Um, and why do ontological questions matter? Yeah, yeah, good question. So, you know, at an undergraduate level, I would say ontology is a branch of metaphysics uh, that deals with what exists. And uh, it's important because presumably if we want to talk and understand what exists, which is, I think, a major goal of philosophy as well as of science, then we have to agree on what sort of ontology we are talking about. Uh, it is, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense for me to try, for instance, uh, to give an account of the existence, quote unquote, of numbers, let's say, uh, if I am, if I am not before that going to tell you what do I mean by existence. I certainly don't mean that numbers are things like planets. You know, I don't mean that you can point a telescope and look at the original number four or something like that, right? So I have to be clear about what I mean by when I say, if I say, that um, mathematical objects exist, then I have to be clear about what I mean by that phrase, because otherwise we're going to just waste a lot of time, uh, you know, talking across purposes. So So I think in that sense, ontology is is important. Would you say that then that ontological questions arise in part because there are a lot of different things that we talk about and they all, and some of them seem to have a very different character. Is that, do you think the reason why these questions come up? Yes, exactly. Right, right. So either they seem to have a different character or they actually do have a different character. And that, of course, is part of what we're going to talk about today, right? So if you have a certain kind of ontological commitment, you would say, well, no, everything is really made of one thing. uh, And there's only one sense uh, of the word existence. And then everything that doesn't seem to fit, it will fit somehow. And here I'm going to explain to you what, right, or how. Right. Uh, then other people they say, no, 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 wait a minute. There are different kinds of ontologies and there are different kinds of uh, meanings of the word exist, and therefore we have to distinguish them. Yeah. Right, so, I mean, a normal, even a normal person, you know, might talk about uh, rocks and trees and, and waterfalls and stuff, but then he might also talk about numbers and he might also talk about other things, and he might notice that, wow, numbers aren't, aren't at all like rocks and waterfalls, right? And then, then sort of interesting questions start, start arising. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, and I think in you know in philosophy, it seems to me that ontological questions became a very specific line of inquiry, specifically in the context of of difficulties in trying to make sense about talking about things that don't exist. Right. Um, right. So you have in the early part of the twentieth century, Bertrand Russell, um, um, you know, asking you know how can we make sense of the statement. Uh, the, the current the, the present king of France is bald. If there is no present king of France, do we have right. to now talk about a non-existent king of France who has this property? And so, in philosophy, I think the way into this discussion, at least the contemporary one, was a relatively technical one about how to make sense of the truth conditions of statements about non-existent entities. Is that your perception also? I mean, that's that's about that's about right. Of course, this is as you say really 20th century and early 21st century philosophy. I mean, so I don't think that Aristotle would have approached things in that way, for one thing. But um, so let me say one thing right straight out at the, at the beginning. So 
My impression is that, or my, my starting point, I guess, um, it's more than an impression. It's a, it's a pretty firm starting point for me. Um, it's the following, that if a philosophical account of existence or truth or whatever it is, um, is problematic to the point that the philosopher wants to say that those things that he's talking about don't actually exist, um, or they don't make sense, or they're illusion, or something like that. To me, that's a red alert that tells me that the that it's it's actually the philosophical account that is problematic, and not the things in themselves. Could you give an example? Well, let's talk about the one that you just gave uh, with Bertrand Russell, right? So. Um, I understand at a philosophical level that one can raise the question, as Russell did, you know, what sense can we make of saying that something that doesn't exist actually has certain properties, right? But you and I and pretty much everybody else agree, understand perfectly well what it means to say that the, that the king of France is false, even if there is no such thing as the king of France. So the question is, you know, we can have all the, in my mind at least, we can have all the discussion that you want uh, from a philosophical perspective, we, we can debate different accounts. But if the, the upshot of that discussion is, you know, people don't actually know what they're talking about when they think about the, 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 the bold king of France, then that to me is a, it's a pretty good uh, flag that tells me that the philosophical account went down the wrong path somewhere. Because we obviously can make sense of talking about things that don't exist. I can say for, for certain with certainty, for instance, that uh, Sherlock Holmes lived at 221B uh, Baker Street. There's no question in my mind, and everybody that has read Sherlock Holmes understands exactly what I'm saying. Uh, and so if somebody, some philosopher is going to tell me, no, 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 that means that, you know, in reality, in fact, you know, that you, you're, you're mistaken, there is some kind of illusion going on and so on and so forth, then my response is, no, sorry. It's your account that's problematic, not my understanding of, of where Sherlock Holmes is. Yeah. But that, yeah. to me, is a kind of a starting point for this. As you know, it's not actually a starting point that is shared by necessarily everyone. There is a lot of so-called eliminativists who would say that, no, we're actually going to get rid of a lot of things that people think they exist, and we're going to call them illusions. Um, yeah. To me, the word illusion is way overused in philosophy these days, and I think that people, it would be great if the people agreed on and moratorium for five years, no philosophy paper or book calling, talking anything about illusions. And I think, I think uh, Daniel Dennett should be banned from using it, have a, get a lifetime ban, not just a five-year ban. Especially <laughs> Dennett. And you know why? Because Dennett is actually the one that, that uh, if you then go, go, go try to take a look at closely what he says, he's really not talking about illusions. Yeah. You know, other people's really are, like the, the Churchlands, for instance, uh, uh, in you know, philosophy of mind. But then it is really not that far from what you and I would consider a reasonable account, but he just started using this, this illusion thing. And, and then when you push him, he says, well, I don't mean illusion as in the doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. All yeah. right, then what do you mean? Yeah, and, and we're gonna we're probably gonna wind up getting to him and the way he talks about persons or selves as illusions. Um, but let's let's try and sort of go in, in 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 an order that the audience will be able to follow. So okay, so we get some sense of what ontology is about, what 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 the subject is. Um, uh, it arises, you know, for ordinary people maybe because we talk about a lot of different kinds of things, but we notice maybe that. That, that there's a, a very, a, a very uh, wide variety in, in the kinds of things that these are, and that maybe that that causes some us to wonder about uh, questions of what really exists and what doesn't. In philosophy, I, I think, at least in the, in the contemporary conversation, it arose largely due to technical questions about 
the truth conditions of certain kinds of statements that involve uh, either either non-existent entities or or other sorts of things. Um, now, what I want to ask you is, okay, let's 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 now talk specifically about specific ontological views. Um, what do you take to be? How would you describe to an undergraduate or somebody who's not in the know what? a materialist is in philosophy. And then the second question is, well, do you consider yourself one? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So, but before actually we go there, if you don't yeah. mind. Yeah, go wherever you want. Yeah. Back up, um, go back for just a second. So you mentioned that something that we should probably revisit pretty soon, which is truth, right? Because ontology, the, the concept, the, the ideas in ontology are actually very close related to epistemology right. uh, and therefore the conceptions of truth. In fact, uh, one of the things that I like to tell my undergraduates is that I, I, I try to keep my ontology never too far from my epistemology. That is, if I make claims about existence, then I have to be make, able to make claims about knowledge, uh, about the existence of certain things. If I don't, if there is too much of a disconnect between the two, then I'm just making stuff up as I go, and, I, and, I, and they shouldn't take me seriously. So the, the, the truth thing is there. And, and the obvious example, and I think actually one of the things that will emerge in the dis- discussion, at least from my perspective, is that I think a lot of the problems in both ontology and epistemology have to do with the, um, the fact that people use the same word, in one case exists, and in the other case truth, even though, in fact, these are family, uh, families of, of meanings that don't have, that, that if, you, if you start using them without qualifying in what sense you're using the word, then there's going to be all sorts of confusion and you're not going to go anywhere. The obvious example is the difference where um, between um, scientists and mathematicians when they say that something is true, right? Mm. So typically, Explain science, right? So a scientist, even though they wouldn't put it this way, typically subscribes to some version of the correspondence to the truth. So if a scientist says, uh, you know, it is true that the, the planet Saturn has rings, what he means is that it is in fact the case that if you go and see Saturn, either with a, with a telescope or, or in, on location, you will see that it has rings. And so whenever I say, when I say Saturn is ring, has rings, that's true because there are certain, you know, this corresponds, quote unquote, to a certain reality of facts out there that are mind independent. But if a mathematician says that the Pythagorean theorem is true, that's not what he means at all. There's no mathematical theorem, you know, out there that you can go measure and check. It's not a correspondence. It's more a coherent uh, view, view of truth. It's a coherentist view. It basically says that if you start with certain assumptions, particularly within Euclidean geometry, uh, and uh, then you can derive from certain assumptions for these axioms, assumptions, certain properties, uh, geometrical figures, and one of these properties is the Pythagorean theorem. But um, So you can say in a vernacular sense that, it is both true that, that uh, Saturn has rings, and it is true, and the Pythagorean theorem is true, but, but they really mean very, very different things. And if you start talking as if they were the same thing, then you're just going to waste a hell of a lot of time, get very frustrated, and go home and have a drink, which is not a bad idea. Have you, have you, let me, you know, this is, I think actually this is a pretty interesting um, way of talking about some of the, one of the fundamental differences between the two disciplines. Um, is this something you've you've flown by some of your friends who are in these areas, and, and what have they what have what has their reaction been to? Yeah, so <laughs> interestingly, the reaction is different depending on who's the friend, who the, what field the friend works in, right? So there are some scientists, for instance, that reject this idea that there is a fundamental difference between mathematics and science, for instance. 
Um, and so they, they want some kind of synthesis of, of uh, sort of epistemological synthesis of the two, which I think is an untenable position. You know, like Lawrence Krauss, for instance, once during a debate that I had with him, uh, and then Dennett, as it turns out. Uh, I remember Kingdom. that. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, you know, people can go check it out. It's, it's, it's on the video is online. Oh, wait, it's on YouTube. Yeah. 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 At some point, uh, when I pressed him, Krauss said, uh, well, look, uh, uh, mathematics is an empirical science. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, because it started out with people counting uh, stuff, which is like, it's completely, uh, you know, bizarre way of responding because uh, he, he just gave me an account of how mathematics maybe perhaps started, which is not the same as an account of, uh, you know, mathematics as we understand it today and how it works. So, so there are some people that actually want to sort of reject any of these distinctions. Um, when you talk to philosophers, at least the philosophers I talk to, they typically nod some kind of agreement, either very sort of vigorously uh, or at least tentatively. And I think that the tentative ones are the ones that, that tend to consider themselves materialists. So let me go back now and answer the question you just put a few minutes ago. So, so what is materialism and am I a materialist? Um, Okay, so materialism, I understand, first of all, there are di- just like anything else in philosophy, there are different versions of any a, a major, major ism. But, uh, but broadly speaking, I think materialism is the ontological position or the metaphysical position that everything that there is in the universe is made of stuff. Now, what that stuff turns out to be, so what we call matter, uh, what that stuff turns out to be, that's up to the physicists, right? Whether it is atoms, quarks, uh, strings, uh, whatever it is, it's, it's going to be up to the physicists pretty much to figure it out, but there's nothing else. That's it. That's, 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 that's the ontology uh, of a materialist. Now, interestingly, as you know, I have, I have an interest in, in Stoicism. The ancient Stoics were materialists. Right. And when they were posed, when they were posed, uh, uh, presented with the kind of problems that we're going to discuss today, which is, okay, but you also talk about virtue, and surely virtue is not made of matter, they, to their credit, will bite the bullet and say, yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Virtue is made of matter. It's made of the logos. And the logos is this thing that is all over the universe. So, yes, it's made of matter. Uh, Now, I don't go quite that far. You could talk that way back then, but talking that way now just doesn't seem to me to fly, right? I mean... No, and yet that is because you know, the word "made of" is being used in a highly metaphorical sense, right? I mean, correct. I mean, correct. that's the problem. But, it, but it's really not that different from the position of some of the people you you criticize in those articles in the in, at the Electric Agora, right? It's, it's you know when when people talk about uh, you know concepts supervening on on the neurological status of the brain, and therefore then the brain supervening on the molecules of which it is made, and the molecules supervening on this on the, on the Works, that's what they're talking about, right? They're, they're basically telling you that uh, they're actually essentially adopting the Stoic position. They're not talking like Stoics, but they're adopting the Stoic position. Um, the more I thought about, so, so when I was young, I was a materialist as well. Uh, as soon as I abandoned religion, right, basically my, my teenage years, uh, the, the obvious uh, next step is, is really a materialism. Like, ah, no, forget all this, because it's a reaction against spooky stuff, right? So you, you started out this dialogue saying that even though you're uncomfortable with the, with the materialist approach to things, at the same time, you're not a Platonist, you're not looking at spooky stuff, you're not a mysterium, you know, nothing like that. And so I think that psychologically speaking, 
that's why I used to be a materialist in the in that sense of the word. That is like I was rejecting any transcendental, any supernatural, any you know spooky stuff, and therefore it looked like the only thing you were left with was materialism. So materialism wins by default. These days, I say that I'm a materialist in a in a sense, but but then we need to talk about it. So I'm a materialist in the sense that I do think that all objects in the universe are made of matter. Okay, so every everything in the universe is made of matter. So including you and me, obviously. So we're all made of of quarks or strings or whatever the hell. Again. Um, Fundamental theory, uh, fundamental physics will tell us. However, there are other. Not everything that exists is a thing. Is that what you're sort of getting well, at? That's the problem. So, well, that's the problem. So, no, I don't think that everything that exists is a thing. So, we're gonna, this is where we're going to get into, into the part that is more interesting for you, right? So, when we say, when we talk about virtue, let's say, we go back to the, to the example of the Stoics, so, well, that virtue is not a thing, it's not made of anything. Okay. And yet, in a sense, it does exist because we can talk about it and it's not fictional. I mean, it actually, uh, you know, the, the concept of virtue actually uh, makes people behave in a different way. So it has causal powers. And it's like, whoa, hold on. What, what the hell is going on there, right? Now, it's definitely not made of quirks. Anybody who tells you that, that virtue is made of quirks is, is, uh, doesn't understand what made of uh, means. Um, it's all, either that or is, is committed to an ideology that, I, that seems to me very bizarre. So then the question is, well, what then what sense are we going to make of these two statements that appear to be contradictory? On the one hand, I'm telling you that everything that exists is made of matter, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's the case. But at the same time, I just told you that there are other things that exist that are not made of matters. And that's because I'm using the word exists in different, with different meanings. When I say that virtue exists, I don't mean that it is something like the planet Saturn. Uh, it's, 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 not, it's not something like the, the tablet on which, through which I'm talking to you now. It's not something like us. Then what is it? Well, I think that all of the exceptions, the more I think about this, in fact, you're, again, your, your articles were very interesting and made me sort of sharpen a little bit my thought about, about this, and I want to hear what, what, you're, what your thinking is about it. But it seems to me that all the exceptions, and there are a large number of exceptions, because you know you, you mentioned number of, uh, a number of them in, in articles. You know, money is an exception, not money as in the instantiation on paper. Current, but you mean currency? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, a con- the idea of a law, the, the idea of a constitution, all of these things, right? Um, they all exist in a sense, but they clearly don't exist in the sense in which the, the planet Saturn exists. Well, then, in what sense do they exist? In my mind, these are all concepts that are mind-dependent. That is, in order for money, constitutions, and things like that, to, or values, which is another one of your examples, uh, to exist, that have to be minds, it, it, probably minds of a certain kind, um, you know, either human or, or relevantly similar to human, to human minds. Uh, that's what, puts, what makes these things, what, what brings these things into existence, essentially. Uh, and by the way, that covers actually every single mathematical object that I can think of. That's why I'm not a Platonist. I think the mathematical objects are human constructs. They're, they're, they're concepts that are invented by the human mind. They have certain very interesting properties once you put them into, you know, into the world, so to speak. Uh, right. But they are not mind-independent. They don't exist without a mind thinking about it. 
Yeah, it's it's you know part of the difficulty is it's tricky to to the language is tricky. Um, you know, um, yeah. and I'm not sure. I wonder, you know, one way to, like you said, one way to go about this is to say, look, um, the word exists is being used in different senses. And I think, I think, I think Russell tried to give some, uh, notion of this by distinguishing between something existing and something subsisting. Um, and I, I guess I'm wondering whether the problem isn't that the word exists is being used with multiple senses, but rather that we've prioritized our way of thinking about what exists according to a kind of scientism, right? In other words, um, um, in other words, we take as our paradigm of existing things, things where substrate and sort of discrete identity is um, what we take to be ontologically salient, right? Um, right? And if we didn't do that, then we wouldn't be inclined to say, you know, I guess, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is that I think that materialism ultimately is a product of a scientistic way of thinking. You know, um, you know, we, you, you got back, going back to your definition of materialism, um, you know, materialism or physicalism um, is typically the view that everything is, uh, is that exists as material or physical. Um, but some serious questions have been raised whether any sort of really coherent sense can be given to the term physical object or material object. So I quoted in one of the essays this quote from J.L. Austin, yeah. whose book Sense and Sensibilia is a very well-known critique of, of, of positivism, of Ayer's positivism. Um, um, and there the question was whether we can distinguish representations of material things from material things because Ayer famously believed that we're only directly aware of our representations and only indirectly aware of material things. So he would contrast a material thing with a representation. And Austin really pressed him, well, what do you mean by a material thing, right? And um, um, what Austin says, I'll just, I'll just read a tiny bit of the quote. Um, sure. um, uh, Austin says, uh, the expression material thing is put forward not as what the ordinary man would say, but as is designating in a general way the class of things of which the ordinary man both believes and from time to time says that he perceives. But then we have to ask, of course, what this class comprises. We are given as familiar examples chairs, tables, pictures, books, flowers, pens, cigarettes. But does the ordinary man believe that what he perceives is always something like moderate-sized specimens or dry goods? We may think, for instances, of people people's voices, rivers, mountains, flames, rainbows, shadows, pictures on the screen, pictures in books, vapors, gases. Are these all material things? Um, and what he basically wants to say is that he thinks that material thing is a bogus category, that it's a sense yeah. of philosophical invention to yeah. contrast it with that all those, those things that don't really exist, right? Which is why I'm starting to wonder whether materialism simply is an expression of scientism, right? It's simply the articulation that we simply privilege scientific ontology, right? Yeah. So yeah. What, what, what exists is what, scientists, what scientific theories say exist or what scientific right. theories quantify over. I certainly agree that right now, as in you know, 20 and 21st century philosophy, that's where the insistence on physicalism and, and materialism comes from. Yes, it's the model is you know, it's the analytic tradition in philosophy 
which uses science as the, 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 the paragon of virtue, so, so to speak. Uh, and so it tries and tries to model. I mean, Russell was one of the famous ones, right? He, he, he said, I think it was in the problems of philosophy that, that uh, we should invent a scientific philosophy that we should, we should do philosophy scientifically. Right. So that's, that's what he means, which is kind of weird from coming from him, considering that he's most famous as a logician and, you know, and, and somebody. A mathematician. <laughs> yeah. Which, is, which has appeared to seem to me to be two fields that are obvious exceptions um, to the to the scientific uh, way of uh, you know of looking at things. So yes, I would agree that the current and by current I mean the last century plus of insistence by philosophers on physicalism that's where it comes from. But then again, we do have uh, physicalists uh, of, of some sort way early on in, in right. Some of the pre-Socratics were were physicalists, right? Uh, in, in that, how, how did they understand? Okay, so if if contemporary physicalists or materialists are thinking of have invented this concept of a material object that really is just a fill-in for um, the sorts of things that scientific theories quantify over, how would you characterize earlier and maybe less tainted conceptions of materialism? So what was material contrasted with, let's say, in the ancient world? It would be contrasted well, so, with the forms, right? With with Platon, Platon, Platonic. Yeah, forms. that's right. The contrast. Yes, yeah, right. The contrast was, was with some kind of transcendent reality, right? Which is most famously, uh, yes, uh, epitomized by Plato's theory of, of the forms. Um, Plato's theory of the forms was actually a, re- a reaction. The interesting thing was a reaction to the prevalent materialism of the time. Uh, you know, because the, the most common kind of ontology uh, at the time came from the Pre-Socratics and the Sophists. Uh, and uh, and uh, both of them, but especially several of the Pre-Socratics, were atomists. And Although, weren't the Pythagoreans, in a sense, proto-Platonists? Weren't they pre, pre-Platonic? Yes, the big exception was the right? yeah. right. big exception were the Pythagoreans. That's that's correct. Uh, which is why, in fact, Plato uh, thought that one should study mathematics in order to understand philosophy, you know, that sort of stuff, right? But yes, but the Pythagoreans were kind of exceptional. Uh, from that perspective, before Plato, among the pre-Socratics, they were exceptional. They were they were mysticists, really, uh, as opposed to the most materialist uh, take of the of the um, pre-Socratic. Most of the other pre-Socratics. In fact, it's kind of interesting. I'm reading a book that maybe we should uh, uh, link uh, from the from the site uh, on the pre-Socratics, and uh, which is really wonderful. It's got a not only the usual sort of summaries and commentaries on on the various Socratics, but it's got pretty much all the fragments. Oh wow. Of, Translated de novo by the author, so it's like uh, it's pretty kind of, it's kind of interesting uh, to look at um, what we have about the Pre-Socratics. And the, the book makes this interesting idea um, very clear that, that is before the Pre-Socratics. One of the reasons the Pre-Socratics are so important is because they switched worldview, broadly speaking, from the mythos to the logos, right? From from the from a mythological accounts, uh, transcendental accounts, if you will of how the world works, you know, invoking deities and things like that, uh, to an account that is essentially, that essentially we would recognize today as scientific. In or naturalistic, at least. Or naturalistic, at least. Yeah. That's right. Or yeah. at least. Um, so that was the dominant. So this, once the switch happened, the materialist or scientific approach to things uh, became the dominant one. In fact, the, the, the original term for scientist uh, you know, the term scientist was actually invented very late, uh, 19th century, by William Willow, who was one of uh, Darwin's mentors. 
But the original word for scientist back in, in ancient Greece was physikos, from physics, right? Because physics was meant to, um, to uh, in a much more encompassing fashion than today, than the term uh, indicates today. It wasn't just physics as we understand it. It was the understanding of the natural world, period, of the world as right. it works. Right. Yeah, it included also what we would today call biology, uh, chemistry, geology, and importantly, metaphysics. Yeah. 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 And I wonder also, let me ask you this. I mean, this is now just occurring to me, but you know, there's so many other ways in which we've discovered maybe that, that, that the modern views are not better than the older ones. And I'm starting to wonder whether this is true here also. In in other words, you know, what's sort of causing me to sort of balk at my, at my former materialism um, is social reality, right? Is sort of the, the things that exist as a part of the social universe. And, um, that becomes a problem when by material you mean what the contemporary analytic philosophers mean by it, which is like we've said, basically the stuff, uh, the, the stuff uh, quantified over by, uh, uh, by the natural sciences. But I'm wondering if in this older sense of material that you're talking about where material is really contrasted with supernatural or transcendental, right. whether all the social reality is going to count as material also. Right. Yes. It certainly is. It certainly was. That was certainly the case for the Stoics. The Stoics counted everything under, uh, you know, in, in, in the, that is part of social reality. I mentioned earlier virtue, but anything that counted as social reality that we would today count as social reality, that was under the material conception in the sense that it was not transcendental. It was not the reflection of forms. It was not the result of deities intervening in so on and so forth. So, yeah, in that sense, I think the, the ancient contrast was more interesting and more, more relevant than today. So let, let me make a comment about our today's issue here. So when people say that the social is supervening or whatever the, the word that you want to use on the physical and therefore ultimately everything is physical in the literal sense of you know, being made of quarks, whatever it is. Um, I had an interesting conversation years ago with Steven Weinberg, who's a Nobel uh, physicist. Uh, this was in the context of yet another uh, conference that you might want to uh, link to, which was the Moving Naturalism Forward, organized mm-hmm. by Sean Carroll, who is a, who is a cosmologist. And, that was uh, a multi-day event, was it not? It was a multi-day multiple, event. Multiple panels. That's right. Multiple yeah. panels. It yeah. was informal discussions, but we were all sitting around the table. Yeah, I've seen uh, some of those, yeah. And interestingly, actually, now there is a new collection of all of the videos, which basically covers all three days. I mean, it's, it's dozens of hours of video. Uh, if, if people, fortunately, they're organized now by topic and by 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 uh, people speaking, so people can actually zoom in on on, uh, on what they're interested. It's interesting for them. But during that naturalism forward thing, at some point, you know, Weinberg did the, the usual made this usual move that a, a number of reductionist philosophers and certainly a lot of physicists do, which is, well, uh, in principle, you know, physics can, be, can give an account also of things like money and values and things like that. And I looked at him and I said, okay, and what is this principle? <laughs> because, you know, as, as far as I can tell, you're just hand-waving. You're just telling me that, you know, you see no reason for there not to be such an account. But the fact that you see no reason for it, it's really not an argument at all. It's just, in fact, if it is an argument, it's an argument from ignorance, uh, which, as we all know, it's a form of fallacy. So that's not, that's just not a good way of producing, of, of putting things. So in that sense, I agree with you, perhaps surprisingly for 
for some of our uh, viewers, when you say that uh, social uh, objects, what, what, what do you want to call them? With social, see, I'm maybe having trouble. No, I, I just talk about right. the elements of social reality, right? And okay. so that's right, social reality. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah, right. yeah. So let's say when when you say that social reality is elements, some elements of social reality are basic, and they are not therefore reducible to works. I com- I completely agree. I mean, things like personhood values or, or things like that, um, identity, you know, the self, all this stuff. Um, these are the elements out of which we build social discourse. And these elements, I don't think, are in any sensible way reducible to uh, quarks. There will never be a uh, theory in any branch of human knowledge. And that's not because we're, we're not smart enough to do it. It's, I don't think it just cannot be done, done period. It's a kind it's, of category error. It's a, exactly. It's a yeah. category error. You know, if anybody tried, they would be wasting a lot of time um, uh, to do that sort, of, that sort of stuff. So I think that in that sense, the objects of social reality truly are fundamental and irreducible to physics. I immediately hasten to say, as you did at the beginning of this conversation, that that implies no transcendental realm, no realm of ideas, no Platonism, no gods, no nothing like that at all. Because when it comes to objects in the sense of physical objects, I still think the world, it's every, everything is made of quarks. Right. What it is, is that social reality is a human construct, is a, is a, is a mind-dependent human construct, okay? just like numbers are. Uh, and therefore, it works and it, and, it, and it operates by its own laws, and these own laws are created by the presence of human minds. You take out human minds from the universe, and all of a sudden that stuff disappears. Right. So right. in my mind, to say that uh, the Pythagorean theorem or the concept of money or the American constitution are mind independent, it's nonsense. It take, it take, it, right. I don't know what that means. Right. I don't know how to cash that out. Right. Right. Now, and I think, you know, here's somewhere where I think you and I would disagree, um, but it's a disagreement that allows us to remain on the same team. Um, um, and that is, and that is that, um, when you say these are mind dependent, I'm going to want to say that they're, um, uh, a person and uh, socially dependent. And because I'm not going to want to give mentalistic accounts. Uh, of these things for Wittgensteinian reasons. In other words, I want to want to say that these are sort of social all the way down. Um, yeah. um, but it doesn't matter from the standpoint of, of our discussion here, because um, we both agree that they're, that, that they're fundamental and that yeah. they're not reducible, um, ontologically reducible uh, right. to anything that is uh, described by the physical sciences. Um, I just want to be clear on one thing because it's something you said to me once in the past, and I want to know whether I, I misunderstood you then or whether you've changed your view on this, and that is we had a discussion a while back on the status of the social sciences relative to the natural sciences, and you right. said that you thought that biology was the bridge between the physical sciences on the one hand and the social sciences on the other. And I wasn't sure whether you meant that purely explanatorily or whether you meant that ontologically as well. It sounds to me like now you'd want to say you didn't mean that ontologically. Um, but I'm wondering. Well, whether... 
Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, I was going to go there next, in, in, in fact. So, so go there. <laughs> let's talk about minds, for instance. For yeah, minutes, yeah, right? yeah. Um, because you, you correctly said, you know, if there is any disagreement, it's going to be possibly at that level between the two of us. But maybe, maybe not even there. Because, for instance, unlike most of my colleagues in positive mind, I don't think that a mind is a brain. Right. Um, or, or a set of brain states or anything like that. A mind is made possible by the presence of a brain with mental states. If I shut off my brain, my mind is going to be gone. Right. There's, right. No mind, there's no Massimo's mind left, right? So it enables, so a brain uh, functioning in a certain way enables a mind. But a mind is, fu- is fundamentally a social construct, uh, meaning that it's possible, it's made possible by the characteristics of my mind are the result of continuous interactions between myself and the rest of the social world. Uh, well, social and physical world. Right, right. Is just as important. Now, that, that gives me a way to, exp- uh, to explain what I perhaps sort of uh, put out a little too cavalierly in our previous discussion, which is when I say that biology is the bridge, uh, is a bridge of some sort between the social sciences and the natural sciences, I don't mean that it's a way to a conduit through which at some point the social sciences will be reduced to the, to the biological sciences. That is E.O. Wilson's take. In right. That's what I, that's what I was thinking of was Wilson, right? Yeah. 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 And, and I know I mean, you're not a Wilson, a Wilsonite. Yeah. No, not at all. In fact, there's an Eon magazine article that I put out a few years ago where I take Wilson to task uh, for that sort of stuff. I don't think that's going to happen. What I meant was something a little, uh, 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 a bit closer to what I just said about minds, which is, Biology is what makes possible biology, and then of course below that physics is what makes the social world possible. In the sense that if we didn't have, you know, uh, physical bodies and including brains of a certain kind, and if we were not a certain kind of animal uh, with certain kinds of instincts and societal structures and so on and so forth, then we wouldn't be talking about, you know, there would be no social world. Period. Uh, if we were a very different kind of animal, there wouldn't be a, a social world. If we did not have brains that are, you know, complex, sophisticated enough to, to uh, manage language, for instance, then there wouldn't be a social world. But that's the extent to which I think the natural sciences kind of intrude into the social world. The rest, from that point on, the social world is essentially a mind, a creation of the human mind, uh, and it is, and it functions by its own, uh, by its own means in its own, in its, in its own way. So that's what I mean, that, that the two are connected, because if you completely disconnect them, then, then you kind of, fall in some sort of dualism again. And that's the, the stuff that we want to try right, to avoid. Right, right. I, just, and I don't want to, I don't want to go back over this again, just because we did it, we did it last time. I just want to sort of just in from my own head. Um, biology does, you think, provide kind of a explanatory bridge, however, because it's where purpose, purpose begins to enter into the explanatory framework. That, and then right. it's full blown in the social the social universe. So the social universe explanations are ultimately teleological. Correct. In biology, they're teleonomic. Correct. And in physics, they're not purposeful at they're all. Right. right. That's right. right. So exactly right. And so I think that that that's a what you just said. It's a major way of distinguishing the physical, the biological, and the social worlds. Now, it's, to some people, it sounds funny even that we want to distinguish the biological world from the physical world because you know, a, a reductionist would say, well, the biological world is just a very complicated physical world. And if you say that, I, I'm sorry, as a biologist, I'm going to tell you, you don't understand biology. If you, just, if you think that biological systems are simply 
particularly complex physical systems, you're completely mistaken. You, there's something there that it's different. Right. I'm sorry. It, it, you know, it, you cannot be eliminativist about life. Life right. has certain characteristics. Again, I'm not invoking any mystical and I'm not being a mysterian about it. I'm just saying that we need to take seriously the data. But then one of the problems in modern philosophy and to some extent in modern science is that people keep wanting to eliminate the problem instead of solving it. Right. When that's hence the word, the very word delimitativism, right? Yeah. About minds. Oh, you know, the minds are just, you know, they don't really exist. They're just patterns in the brain. If you say something like that or, or similarly, uh, within science, oh, life is just a particular type of physical system. Whenever you use the word, somebody uses the word just, uh, I think that people should just take their guns. Uh, and start shooting. Start worrying, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it just means that you, you're trying to eliminate the problem, essentially. Yeah. I mean, in terms of your mind, uh, John Ciarla used to refer to this as not taking the data seriously. Yeah, or or would, d- denying the phenomena. I mean, this is the phenomenon, phenomenon to be explained, right? right? I mean, um, and it seems to me that, you know, I like, I like the fact that you put it this way. I mean, if you're going to use these kind of eliminativist arguments to suggest that, well, um, there aren't really laws or really countries or really, then you're also going to have to say there aren't really biological functions, right? Because it's at the level of function that you start to get the purposeful explanations that without them, you cannot explain the relevant phenomena. Right. Um, um, And so, and so I don't think that, I don't think it's any more plausible to say that there aren't laws uh, meaning like, you know, criminal laws, let's say, um, and to say that there aren't really, uh, uh, functions of hearts or livers, right? Yeah, um, exactly. But it seems to me the reductionist would have to say, the eliminativist would have to say both, right? Yeah, that's right. And that puts them in, a, in to one, my, from my perspective, is it's an indefensible corner. It's just like, I mean, I understand why they get there because, you know, once you start with certain assumptions or certain axioms, uh, I think I think that what that's what philosophical accounts are, right? So philosophical accounts, philosophical theories, I don't like the word you to use the word theory in philosophy because it reminds me too much of science. Yeah, I, I like accounts better too because theory has a very specific meaning in science. Exactly. I think it should be so, left alone. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But a philosophical account, of course, start, like any other account, like a mathematical account or like a scientific account, it starts with certain axioms. And I completely understand how an eliminativist would start with certain axioms and, and that leads him to, you know, to buy the bullet essentially and to conclude that your minds and selves are illusions and that uh, biological functions don't really exist and all that sort of stuff. But to me, when you get, when your assumptions, even if when followed correctly, lead you to that kind of conclusion that, as you put it earlier, denies the phenomenon, then I think that's a good indication you should go back and, and throw out the assumptions and start over because you, you painted yourself in a corner that it's not particularly useful. Now, I'm sure at some point we're going to get to Wilfred Sellers. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I was going to bring him in sort of towards the end, but if you want to bring him in now, that's fine. Well, the reason I think it's, it, it might be a good idea to bring it up now is because as you, so well, first let's remind our, I guess our viewers of what we're talking about. So, so Sellers was one of the, what we were referred to in, in a previous episode as one of the most underestimated philosophers of the, the most important philosopher you've never heard of, right? I mean, exactly. <laughs> And, and I really, the more I read about him or by him, uh, the more I think that really that is true, that, that it should be revalued significantly. But so briefly speaking, Sellers came up with this idea, one of the many things that he proposed, but perhaps the one for which he's most famous is this distinction between the scientific image and the manifest image. So he says, 
you know, there's two ways of looking at the world, essentially. Uh, one is the one that you get, you get out of science, and the other one is what one you get out of looking at things from a social perspective, in terms of values, in terms of uh, you know, uh, prescriptions, and things like that. And um, he famously said that the project of modern philosophy really should be to come up with a way to, and here's where I'm going to use the words, the word very carefully, reconcile the two views. Now, reconcile here can mean very different things. And sure enough, there are two uh, groups of students of Sellers who have become, in fact, influential philosophers yeah. in their own right. And, and they, Dennett evokes sellers to support his view. Churchland yeah, invokes exactly. sellers. So you're absolutely right. I mean, two completely opposite camps are both claiming ownership of this manifest right. scientific image distinction. Yeah. So there is, there's this wonderful, uh, um, uh, article in the Stanford Institute of Philosophy about sellers that at the end gets to that point. And he says that the right, he calls the, the author calls them the right wing, wing salarians. Uh, and these are the church funds, for instance, uh, or people like Dennett, uh, have taken the reconciliation to mean that the, that the manifest image is essentially mistaken and that we should basically uh, subsume it into the scientific image. The left-wing salarians, uh, among whom uh, is listed Richard Rorty, yeah. by the way, um, those are the ones that say, no, 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 no. What, what Sellers actually meant was that these two worlds kind of coexist and that the point of philosophy is to develop what Sellers himself called the stereoscopic vision. That is, you should be able to look at both and make sense of both. Making sense of both doesn't mean reducing one to the other. Um, it just means that you need to keep looking at the world in these two very different ways, precisely because you cannot reduce them one to the other. Yeah. Precisely because, according to Sellers, there is no way in which, there is no vocabulary in fundamental physics that recovers anything like moral values or, or aesthetic beauty or anything like that. All the stuff that makes the social world or, or laws. Or everything, anything. everything normative, right? Exactly. Yeah. Everything normative yeah. is not to be found in the physical world, just like nothing teleological is going to be found in the biological world. As we were saying earlier, it's the same thing because they're both, because teleology as well as normative stuff are the inventions of human minds. And so, therefore, they are limited, they are, they are confined, they exist only in the, the, the social world, and there's no way that you can sort of get rid of it or eliminate, or eliminate it. Yeah. And I'm really convinced that Salas was right, that basically the major task, arguably, of philosophy at a sort of a really broad level is to make sense of the stereoscopic vision of, of things. You know, how do, yeah. Because to some extent, you cannot ignore the scientific image, because one way... Uh, one might be tempted to go is, I don't know if any student of Sellers actually went this way, maybe, maybe Rorty. Um, but one could go the other way, the, the opposite way from the eliminativist and say, look, science doesn't matter at all when it comes to discussions of the social world. It's just can be, it can be eliminated, not because it doesn't exist or gets things wrong, but because it's relevant. My, um, Argument earlier that biology is a bridge to the social sciences and things like that denies that because yeah. that can't be right. I mean, that can't be right, right? I mean, th there's a precondition for the social, right? Exactly. exactly. Um, um, the social doesn't emerge out of the ether, right? I mean, it emerges yeah. out of biological life. I mean, that that's seems pretty and clear. Biology still 
today, not only an emerge, not only the social emerged from the biology, and therefore bio, biological, and therefore in, in historical terms, we need to still take into account. But I still think uh, it it, it um, constrains it to some, at least to some extent, and it, yeah. and it guides it in certain directions rather than others. I mean, you know, uh, we could talk, for instance, about uh, it, it exquisitely social phenomenon, which is gourmet restaurants, right? That's got nothing to do with biology directly. It's not the result of natural selection or, you know, Pache, the, 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 the strange people known as evolutionary psychologists. Um, so, you know, gourmet restaurants and gourmet food is an exquisitely social phenomenon. But nonetheless, we're talking about food. Uh, there are certain limitations on even what gourmet cooks can make because if you make stuff that is poisonous to a human organism, uh, you know, you're not going to be very successful as a restaurateur. Right. There are no restaurants without organisms that eat. Exactly. Or without, or that serve things that cannot be eaten by those organisms. Right, 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 right. You know, I actually think that to the extent to which there is that side of the reaction to sellers, you might argue it's some of the postmodernists, right? I mean, there's some of the, um, although they would never claim sellers because he's far too analytic for them, but they're saying something like that. These radical sort of social constructionists, right? Are are sort of, sort of, sort of talking that way. Um, um, you know, just to go back to something you said a minute ago, um, and then I want to get us onto our last our last things so that we don't go on too long. Um, but um, you know, I, I'm I'm getting kind of nitpicky with things like you know, the social world is the invention of the human mind because it almost makes it sound like, well, you know, it's just made up. It's just and and, and what I like to say about the social world is the social world is what you get once there are persons and representations, right? Because once there are persons and representations, there are points of view. And once there are points of view, there are values, right? Right? There are things that matter. There are are people to whom things matter, right? And that's where you start to get all of this sort of structure that is what makes up the, the social universe we live in. I don't think that that's something that's made up. I think that that's something that, I don't want I'm using words naturally carefully is a natural result of there being persons and repre- and persons and representations, however you construe them, whether you construe them mentalistically or whether you construe them more like a Wittgensteinian would. No, I tend to agree. Uh, the, the word that actually would come most naturally to me would be that the social world emerges from certain kind of, of minds and certain kind of, of, of organisms. But then again, the problem is that the word emergence itself has a big baggage in, 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 uh, in philosophy yeah. and Probably don't want to use that one. So, but you're right. The, the putting in terms of you know uh, are made up. It's it's not it's not accurate because it's it sounds way too arbitrary. And or like something you could not do if you didn't want to. You know what I mean? Right, um, exactly. And once we represent things from certain points of view, it's simply going to follow that they're going to be values, and then we right. build institutions on the basis of those values and create forms of life and all these sorts of things. And so. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I would say that the word emerges is actually the most natural, uh, except that we need to qualify it because then people are going to say, oh, you're talking about strong emergence. No, I'm not talking. No, we just mean emerge in the ordinary language sense. We're not meaning in terms of technical emergentism, which is a whole theory in yeah. the philosophy of mind. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about is, um, and it gets to this issue of sellers and the relationship between the two images, Um and this is the move that Dennett wants to make. So, you know, it's really only truly crazy people like the Churchlands 
who are going to go and actually tell you that these things don't exist, right? So, you know, it, it takes someone like a Churchland to tell you that countries don't really exist or that laws don't really exist. Most most materialists don't want to say that because they don't want to look foolish. So what they'll do instead is they'll say, oh, yeah, these things exist. But what they really are is, right. and then they'll give you some scientific account. And so Dennett sort of talks this way, and this is where the illusion talk comes in, right? Yeah. And so Dennett wants to say that selves or persons are user illusions like desktop icons of file folders in compu- on computer displays, right? That's the example he uses in the most recent book. Yeah. And so I want to get very clearly from you, and then I'll weigh in on it, what you think is wrong with this way of trying to prioritize the scientific ont- – the, the ontology of the scientific image, let's call it that, or the materialist ontology. What's fundamentally wrong with this, this idea of, oh, yeah, those things exist, but what they really are is – and then the rest is filled out by some piece of ontology that comes from the scientific image. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, the problem with, with Dennett's analogy is that it's, it's actually fairly powerful, right? I mean, he's good at that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and, and especially if you know what, what, if you have any familiarity whatsoever with, you know, computers and file folders and things like that, you get what he's getting at immediately. It's, it's a very powerful idea. But, it, but of course, philosophers, at least from the time of David Hume and arguably actually all the way to Plato, have realized that analogical arguments are really bad arguments. They're, they're really problematic. Or at least you have to be very careful in using them. Um, exactly. Um, yeah. Precisely because the metaphor is interesting and it can be illuminating, right? You, 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 a good metaphor uh, is what uh, Dennett himself calls an intuition pump, which, by the way, it's a metaphor, right? <laughs> in, in and of itself. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. You're doing this right. <laughs> exactly. Because intuitions usually don't get pumped, right? Right. right. But... <laughs> But uh, you see how that goes, right? So it's it's a powerful metaphor. But then if you start thinking about, so when you say, when, when Bennett says, oh, uh, metaphors are intuition bumps, you immediately get what he's saying. But if you start taking that metaphor a little too literally and you start saying, oh, so who is doing the pumping? Or, you know, what pressure am I applying to my intuitions? Now you got off the rails. Now, now immediately you have gotten something quite wrong about it. And I think the same goes on with the really clever, because I have to, I have to give it to Dan, the really clever analogy of the user uh, interface. So in a sense, he's right, in my mind, but not in a very limited sense. That is, if he's saying that my, my sense that I have, that, that there is such a thing as Massimo, right, as a unitary self, I have, I have that strong sense. Most people don't don't suffer from psychological pathologies have this strong sense that they exist as an individual, okay, as a person. Um, in some sense, that does reflect a either superficial or, in fact, even in a sense mistaken uh, introspection into what's going on in my own mind. That is, you know, if I open myself up, there is not going to such, as any, be any such thing as the self. You're not going to find it. You're not going to, you know, in that sense, Hume was right that, you know, whenever I look inside myself, all I see is a bundle of perceptions and, and, and things like that. That is true. In fact, we know from neurobiology that the human mind, it's a complicated set of, you know, loosely connected and loosely defined models that interact in a variety of different ways and they can be disrupted 
in a variety of different ways. But, so in that sense, yes, I am mistaken, quote-unquote, if I think that there is a strong essentialist sense of self uh, that I can just open up my, my brain and, and look at. But I'm definitely not mistaken if I say that, look, what I mean by self is precisely that sort of stuff. It's a dynamic set of sensations and thoughts and, and so on and so forth that happen within a particular biological organism that are made possible by particular you know, certain structures interacting with the external world, particularly with the social world, and so on and so forth. And what I mean by, by, by uh, self is that. Let me give you a better example, which I don't think that Dennett would, would uh, uh, object. Memory, right? So when we say, I remember, you know, that last night my daughter was here for dinner, for instance, which is true, right? Um, well, what do I mean? Do I mean that there is a tape recorder in my head that, that I can play back every time that I want to have that memory? No, obviously not. So if you take it, if I take the word memory literally as I have some kind of mnemonic device that, that hard-coded, you know, the events in, that happened here in my apartment yesterday, then I'm clearly mistaken. There's, there's no such event. But does that mean that my memory is an illusion? Absolutely not. I have a, capa- a biological capacity which has an incredibly important social function, which I, I refer rightly so as memory. How it works in terms of the biology behind it, it doesn't really matter in terms of using it. Whenever I say to you, look, yesterday my daughter came over for dinner, you don't need to know which structures of my brain somehow interact in a way that I actually recover that memory. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, our analysis is at our conversation is at a social level. What is relevant to you in our conversation is that I had that, that I remember my daughter coming in for dinner and I can even tell you what we had for dinner and what we did and so on and so forth, right? Those are all the relevant things. And they're not illusions. And they're not made possible by an illusion at all. But if you say, oh, does that mean you got a you know VCR kind of stuff in your brain? No, obviously not. I don't mean Yeah, I, I I guess that um and I don't know whether this, whether we're, whether this is a disagreement or just simply different ways of speaking, but I guess I would want to say that I don't think that there's any sense in which Dennett is correct. Um, and I, and this is why I'm wondering whether we're saying the same thing just in a different way. And that is, and I wrote this in one of the essays. I said, you know, someone, I was having an argument about this, about whether there really are persons or selves, you yeah. know, asked me, with a very triumphant voice, you know, you know where it is, right? right? As if my inability to find where myself is is significant, like if I was unable to find where my pancreas is, right? Um, and and my response to the person was, well, you know, selves aren't things like pancreases, <laughs> and Correct. so you're not going to find them anywhere, right? And Correct. so the whole idea of looking in your head for yourself, as Hume sort of does, seems to me to misunderstand what kind of a thing a person or a self is right and 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 it is a misunderstanding that involves precisely the prioritization of scientific ontology that i'm objecting to right in other words if we prioritize scientific ontology then we think that what a thing is is a kind of a discrete a discrete entity in space right um i think you're right so let me let me rephrase then what i just said yeah so the reason i brought up hume uh, and in fact, as soon as I did, I, I knew you were going to say something. You like knew this. I was going to say this. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap. I'm, I'm putting myself, I'm pinning myself into a crowd. Okay. So what I, what I mean by that is not that Hume was right at a fundamental ontological level. 
But that Jung was right in the sense that there's no such thing as a permanent essence of a self. And that, in fact, when you do look inside yourself, quote unquote, in there is no enduring object inside your head that is the you. Exactly. exactly. Right. right. That, in that sense, he's, he's right. Right. Where he's not right, if he says so, is where Dennett wants to go, which is, oh, therefore, the self is an illusion. Right. No. That's the part that's yeah. wrong. Right? <laughs> that's the part that is wrong. But now I think that the, better, the best analogy that I've come up with so far, when people, uh, when people make the kind of argument that, that your friend has been making, is like, so you don't think that numbers exist, do you? Because that, that's the same kind of argument. You know, if I say, well, you know, there are, there are certain things of the matter that I can say about numbers or, or mathematical objects, and somebody says, well, really, where are these mathematical objects? Can you point them to me? I can say, no, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. Yeah. They exist in a different, and we'll go back now full circle from to the beginning of this conversation. They exist in a different sense of the word existing and if, you, if, if we insist in this conversation, in using the word exist, just like the word truth, as if it meant one thing and precisely only one thing, then we're going to waste a hell of a lot of time. Yeah. So when somebody says, oh, you believe in the self, where is it? My response from now on is going to be, oh, you believe in the Pythagorean theorem, where is it? Because it's exact to me, that's exactly the same kind of mistake that they're making. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, and in that, in that sense, you're absolutely right. That's a scientific mistake. The way you just put this was extremely clear, and I, I can see it now. I mean, it's, it's – look, the Platonist makes the same mistake in reverse, right? right? right. He, he, and, and, and the word I've used a lot in my essays, this is like my favorite newly discovered word, is hypostasize, right? right? Which is to, to – to, to conceive of something as a discrete individual, right? Um, yeah. um, and that's sort of a prejudice that carries over from, as Austin pointed out, this fixation on middle-sized dry goods kind of object as our paradigms of material reality. And um, so, so, so what happens is, you know, the Platonist also has this sort of lack of, the same lack of imagination as the materialist, right? He thinks that if something like a number doesn't exist in the manner of something like a pancreas, then it must be like an invisible pancreas, right? Um, um, Rather than realizing, wait a minute, no, no, no. There are all kinds of things that are part of the, are are the part of the furniture of the world we inhabit. But they have very different characteristics. They exist in very different kinds of ways. Um, 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 And and it's a mistake to kind of think you're going to be able to give one account, right? I mean, I mean, exactly. I mean, you see me. One of the lessons of this is that there can't be a single ontological account, right? There can't be exactly. a single theory of what there is, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and that is the mistake. And I think you're you're absolutely right the way you just put it. That the Platonists, I think, make the, in some sense the, the same mistake or the, 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 the symmetrical mistake to the physical physic the physicalists, right? They both trying to fit everything into one uh, sense of the word exist. And therefore, the physicalists find themselves into the absurd position of wanting to deny that a bunch of things that exist actually do exist. And the uh, Platonists find themselves in the, in my mind, equally absurd position of expanding so much the, 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 the meaning of exist that they think that there is this invisible stuff out there uh, that in some sense corresponds to the physical stuff. And while in fact, in my mind, the position, the correct position is the one you're taking, which is, no, there is a plurality of ontologies here. Now, where I 
would agree with one guy we have not mentioned and we probably uh, disagree with on most other things, but I would agree with one thing uh, with Quine, which is, yes, there is a variety of, of, um, of ontologies. In fact, Quine himself had to admit that mathematics has a different kind of ontology. Uh, even though he was, he considered himself, so he, he's often considered a reductionist, but nonetheless, he admitted that, yeah, but there are these numbered things that are kind of different. What he did, however, warn us, and I think he was right, that we should seek a desert kind of ontology, right? So the, the most sparse ontology possible. That is, you don't want to multiply um, ontologies at every, every, every turn, turn, because otherwise you're going to find yourself into a forest that you don't understand anymore because now every kind of object becomes its own ontology uh, and, and, and you don't really... Uh, well, what happens is you wind up having problems of individuation when you do that, right? Correct. He's correct. got this famous line about, you know, how many, possi- how, many, how many possible fat men are there in the doorway? How many possible, you know, bald men are in the doorway? And are the possible fat men and the possible bald men the same men or same possible men? Are the- in other words, you get, you get, an, in- you get an individuation problem yeah. when you start uh, just simply being ontologically profligate in that manner. Exactly. Um, um, so I think that the better way to describe it is the way you described it, or maybe to use another word is, you know, ontology is fundamentally heterogeneous, right? Or it's fundamentally pluralistic. Um, and, and by the way, it seems to me that that is the case even before you get to social reality. That's the case once you get to biology, right? Because yeah. of the existence of functions, right? Yeah, um, right. Um, and there, is no, there are no functions in the language of physics, right? There are no functions right. at that level of right. description. And so right. um, um, ontology is by necessity, once you get biological life, is going to be uh, pluralistic. And certainly once you get social life, it's going yeah. to be pluralistic or heterogeneous, whichever word you prefer. So, so, so when you were talking, I was, I was thinking, so perhaps if somebody pushed me and say, you know, so how many kinds of ontologies do you recognize? I would, I would have to say at least four, right? One is the ontology of fundamental op- physical objects. You know, the, the stuff, and by fundamental, I don't just mean quarks. I mean, you know, galaxies, you know, everything physical that exists, you know, everything that falls within physics and chemistry, things like that. So there's that ontology. Then there is the biological ontology, the ontology of functions, and that's made possible by the existence of natural selection. You know, without natural selection, you don't get functions. Right. Uh, then, there are, then there is a social ontology in terms of, um, uh, as you were saying earlier, mostly in terms of prescriptive uh, statement, yeah. Yeah. Uh, values and things like that. And then there is a mathematical logical ontology. You know, there are things like theorems and, and, and uh, modus ponens and, and, and things like that, which, and, and both of these last two, I think, are made possible by a social, by the existence of a social world. I don't think that the mathematical logical ontology exists outside of, uh, of the existence of, of uh, uh, you know, social beings that think in a certain way. But nonetheless, so I would say at least these four. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you could slice them up different way. I mean, I used to think that it was two. I mean, that the sort of, you know, they were on the, that, that atoms were sort of the, sort of the, 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 the brute facts of the, of the physical, of the, of the scientific image and that sort of persons were the brute facts of the, of the manifest. But I agree with you that you could kind of, you know, divide both the scientific and the manifest into two fundamental ontologies. Right. Um, but there certainly isn't one. Right. No, um, that's right. Um, if you take if you take the the the, the Salarzian picture seriously, there isn't one, and um, I just wonder how long people are going to keep banging on this 
Because I don't see, it doesn't seem to me to be changing very much. In other words, if anything, it seems to me to be hardening. Um, um, And um, my worry partly about its hardening is that I think it's actually leading inquiry into a lot of dead ends that people aren't even realizing are dead ends. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. Well, that's, that's why we were saying early at the beginning of this, this discussion that to be clear about one's ontology is important because otherwise you're going to ask all sorts of questions that don't make any sense or yeah. that they're going to lead you down a rabbit hole uh, that, that you really should avoid. Uh, yeah. And you're right. My sense is that right now a lot of discussions in philosophy and you know, ontology uh, are going that way, and, the, and and that's the result of uh, of a scientific sort yeah. of thing. I think, for example, in my view, it's completely destroyed the philosophy of mind. I mean, I think the philosophy of mind is a shell, is a shell of what it used to be. I mean, it used to be one of the most vibrant, powerful disciplines in which the, some of the best people in philosophy were working. And yeah. now, I mean, now you've got people. I mean, I mean. You now are in a situation where you, philosophy of mind is is a, is a subdiscipline in which something like panpsychism is actually taken seriously, right? I know, right? Talking about conscious muons, right? Yeah. I mean, that's right. how bad that's right. we're talking about. And um, but, but as you can see, yeah, and, and you, as you know, I have absolutely no sympathy whatsoever for for you know David Chalmers is in, in, in his uh, or Galen Strassen. I mean, a smart man, or, Galen Strassen's not stupid. No, no, no. But this is how is you that, can get captured, yeah. right? In a way that then. But neither is David, and but that, this is what happens precisely when, as we were saying earlier, uh, smart people begin with certain kind of assumptions that they see they take to be reasonable, and then they smartly follow uh, through with those assumptions, right? I mean, if you start out like Chalmers does with the idea that there is a, a hard problem of consciousness, then I'm sorry, but Panzaikis does follow as one of the most elegant solutions to the problem because otherwise you're going to be stuck in some kind of untenable dualism, right? Right, right. But once you start that way, but the problem is you don't have to start that way. That, that you know, you can reject. And I think you're right that as interesting as it is, even panpsychism is interesting. Um, I think it's a bland alley, but it's interesting as a way as because it shows where even smart philosophical investigation can go wrong. Well, it's interesting but, as a reductio ad absurdum, right? I mean, exactly. it's interesting exactly. as showing you how you can get to a completely batshit crazy conclusion exactly. from totally rational deductions. Exactly. From a now, bad, from a bad starting point, right? Exactly. But so I was taught when I was back in you know high school in Italy uh, that there was a, a pretty good way to figure out whether you had gotten the right um, – the, the right demonstration of a mathematical theorem. And so, because we would do a lot of exercises with, you know, so demonstrate this theorem, you know, follow through this, uh, you know, through these axioms. And the, my professor, my teacher would always tell us, just look at where your demonstration leads you. If the result makes sense, it's pretty much what you expected, then you probably did it right. <laughs> but if you actually went in a direction that makes clearly no sense, then you made a mistake and you have to you know, trace back your, 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 your steps until you find a mistake. And so that seems to me what people like Chalmers should do or, or Strasen should do. Uh, oh, if I start from this perspective, I'm going to end up with panpsychism. Well, panpsychism can't possibly be true. Therefore, I made a mistake somewhere. Yeah, I got to go back. Yeah. Right yeah, it's right there yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's right. Well, Massimo, uh, this was um, terrific. We managed to talk some pretty technical stuff in a way that I think I hope will be accessible. The audience will tell us whether it was accessible or not. And um, uh, why don't you – I don't know – I like to, I like to give people a heads up on the, on the doings of my participants. And so, um, did you just film a Ted talk in Greece? I did. It's a, it's a TEDx talk. That is I this going to be my- available? Can people watch this? When is this going to be up? It's going to come out in a few weeks. Uh, so I'll, we'll update the link as soon as it comes out. Uh, yes, there was a TEDx conference in Athens, uh, just a couple weeks ago. And I was invited to give a talk about stoicism as ordinary as philosophy of ordinary life, and it was really interesting because, uh, of course, giving a talk on stoicism, literally two miles from where from the location where stoicism got started back in 300 BCE, was kind of exciting. So it was there was a very particular energy to the, to the to that meeting and that presentation. Well, that's very cool, and um, we um, will. Uh, We'll put up as many links as we can today of the stuff we talked about. And um, uh, I look forward to our next discussion and um, uh, say goodbye and see you next time to the uh, Sophia audience. All right. All right. Take take care, my friend. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.